You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey fellow listeners of Ancient History Fangirl. We are Dr. G and Dr. Rad. We host a podcast on ancient Rome called The Partial Historians. If you're interested in getting behind the story of Rome and you kiss a picture of Agrippina the Younger before bed every night, join our conversation. You can find us by searching for The Partial Historians or at partialhistorians.com. We are also active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And now back to the ancient history fangirls. Enjoy the show! If you've got a problem, take it up with my sack of gold. dreamt it would end this way. You sit in the prow of the great Antonia, the ship rising and falling with the rolling sea, nothing around you but the sound of the wind and the slap of the oars against water. This was not how it was supposed to go. Cleopatra never should have run that blockade. Not so soon. Not with half your navy in tow, at the height of the pivotal battle, but her sins are not so great as yours. Because the minute you saw her go, you jumped in your fastest ship and gone after her, abandoning your men to their fate. It goes against all honorable behavior for any self-respecting Roman general. What you're supposed to do if a battle is lost is to move and regroup, start over on favorable ground. Amidst all the myriad rules of war, there is only one that matters. Never abandon your men. And now, here you are, the great hero of Philippi, disgraced and beaten by a boy half your age. None will follow you now. Despite the broad horizon, you can feel the world closing in around you, your fate tightening its fist. You could say you went after her because you knew the battle was lost, but that isn't the truth of it. The truth is, you'd seen that ship glide past, and in that instant, you thought you'd lost her. There was nothing else you could do. This battle was your last stand. You know in your bones you won't get another. But you'd do it again, just this way. You'd let the world burn to keep her safe. I'm Jenny Williamson. 
And I'm Jen McMenemy. That's it. You're just going to be Jen McMenemy today? Oh, I see how it is. You only like me when I'm the severed head of Crassus or a war elephant. I got to say, the severed head of Crassus did an ace job, Jen. You have a lot to live up to. I do. And man, if I could get that eyeliner game down. I'm talking about the eyeliner and the performance on the podcast. You should just go back, listen to Cleopatra Part 1, listen and learn. This is ancient history fangirl, by the way. (laughs) Not my performance review, where I find out the guest, the severed head of Crassus, is a better co-host than me. The severed head of Crassus and I are in talks to to bring him on permanently. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) In our last episode, Mark Antony had settled into life in Alexandria as Cleopatra's consort, even as the propaganda war between him and Octavian rose to a fever pitch in Rome. Again and again, Mark Antony's friends begged him to break things off with Cleopatra, and again and again he refused, even as he continued to shower Cleopatra and their children with honors and provinces. Eventually, Octavian got his hands on Mark Antony's will, read aloud the most damning parts in the Senate, accused Mark Antony and Cleopatra of plotting to take over Rome, and then declared war. Not against Mark Antony, but against Cleopatra. Here's the thing, though. This war was bullshit. It was total bullshit. Absolutely. We call bullshit on your war, Octavian. We call bullshit over here at Ancient History Fangirl. And here's why. First off, ancient Rome had a very specific process for declaring war on another country, which Octavian didn't follow, because why would he? Rules are for other men, right, Octavian? We see how you work. Instead, he'd held this quote-unquote ancient ceremony, which involved dipping a spear's point in pig's blood and hurling it in the direction of the country he was declaring war on. He claimed it was a quote-unquote ancient ceremony, but he probably was making it up. They probably took the patch of sacred ground he was supposed to be hurling a spear at and, like, put it really close to where he was standing because Octavian with his scrawny arms, speaking as a fellow scrawny armed person, I seriously doubt he could hurl a spear that far. And also, he's probably one of the only people in this story who could hurl a spear at the ground and miss. Aw, and yet, even for all his scrawny arms, he still wound up first emperor of Rome, so hope yet, kids. That's true. If you're scrawny armed, don't worry. You can still be a dictator. (laughs) Whereas those of us with swimmer's shoulders, we were just built to be war elephants. (laughs) Let's not like, you know, put too fine a point on people's body types being their destinies. I'm just saying it's okay to also be a war elephant. It's okay to be whoever you are, unless you're Octavian, in which case, no, not okay. Not okay. Go home. Not okay on so many levels. Anyway, second, now that we've had our little Octavian rant. Second, Octavian didn't specify what Cleopatra did to deserve having war declared on her. Not exactly. He just said he declared war on her for, quote, her acts that went against Roman principles as Roman wars have to be justified. The thing is that the justified war in Roman society, the bar on that was quite low. (laughs) So if you couldn't even meet that bar, we're just real problems. Let's just say that this was not some kind of Geneva Convention humanitarian thing. No, it was all very self-serving. But Octavian didn't even meet that criteria. Shame, Octavian, shame. Octavian, you are a bad person and you should feel bad. I want the little bell for him, really. Shame, shame. Anyway, even... Even so, Octavian was the sole power in Rome now, and he'd whipped the Senate up into enough of a frenzy that in 32 BC, they voted to strip Antony of all his authority in Rome and declare him an enemy of the people. Mark Antony and Cleopatra were still in Athens while all this was happening, and I gotta say that this had to be baffling to Cleopatra in particular because she had never attacked Rome. She'd never done anything wrong. 
she just keeps giving him money and devaluing her currency and paying for their wars and giving them grain. Like, okay, she's in love with Antony, but he's there on Rome's business. What's the big deal? Cleopatra was a really good client ruler. For a decade or more, she'd kept her country both stable and profitable for the Romans, and it kept that grain flowing in, you know, and all that tribute money. And true, she'd helped Mark Antony raise an army just now, but that army was for Parthia, which is technically Roman business. You could definitely argue that this was also not a justified war under even the low bar of Roman standards. But the point is, Mark Antony was there to have war with Parthia, so, right? Wasn't he? The thing is, whenever Mark Antony says he's going to war in Parthia, what he really does is he goes to Athens and fucks off for three years. So he was in the midst of that phase. You would think Octavian would be like, cool, just go fuck off for three years while I solidify my power more. And um, if you think about Parthia and decide to go there, I hope you don't get shot with an arrow. Anyway, Antony was enraged and bewildered by Octavian's actions. He raged to his friends at Octavian's duplicity, his illegal seizing of Antony's will, and his lack of courage in declaring war against Cleopatra and not him when everyone knew Antony was his real target. Once again, Antony's Roman friends urged him to send Cleopatra back to Egypt. He had to, said the friends. This was a public relations test from Octavian. If Antony kept Cleopatra by his side, he'd be making his choice, clearly showing the Roman public that Cleopatra was far more important to him than they were, and showing them he was willing to go to war voluntarily against Rome on Cleopatra's behalf. Of course, Antony did not send Cleopatra away. He stayed loyal, and that was exactly what Octavian was hoping he'd do. Going to war against Antony was a gamble for Octavian. Antony was an experienced general who'd learned from Julius Caesar, the greatest military mind ever to walk the earth, according to many historians, and possibly Octavian. And definitely according to Caesar. Definitely according to Caesar. We're not going to say his full name again, because that is like, it's getting close, guys. I mean, he's listening. You know he'll pop up at some point. This is a long episode. Behind Antony stood a massive army on land and at sea, all the might of the vast kingdoms of Asia, the bottomless wealth of Egypt, and a third of the Roman Senate. Octavian's power in Rome wasn't as official as he made it out to be, but Octavian had his own ace in the hole. Ace in the hole? That is, it's ace in the pocket. It's ace in the hole, Jen. I've never heard that before. I've never heard ace in the pocket. Is that a Britishism? No, it's a card. You have an ace card in your pocket. You're just going to say, I'm making you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say some weird Vermont thing that doesn't exist anywhere but Vermont, but that's fine. Maybe I made it up like the the Bologna ceremony. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just going to chuck a spear anywhere. Just chuck a spear and flail your arms and let it land where it may and call that the sacred ground. Like, I declare war. (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing. Octavian had his own ace in the hole and his name was Agrippa. Ace in the hole. I said what you wanted me to say. You can't get upset now. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just snorking over here in the corner. I just, that sounds like, it's. A, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just talking about Agrippa now, okay? Talk about my man Agrippa. Here's where Agrippa comes into the story. Agrippa was about Octavian's age. He was from humble plebeian origins. His family had not been prominent in public life, but he'd grown up with Octavian. They'd gone to school together and they'd been close friends since boyhood because they were boyhood friends. Okay, that's... That's what you do in boyhood. You have friends, right. And if you're Octavian, you have one friend. Just one. (laughs) To be fair, if your one friend is Agrippa, that's all you need. Agrippa may have been the only person who could stand to be around 
Octavian for any length of time without feeling a need to punch him, which I think is definitely the secret of their relationship. Agrippa and Octavian had both been about 18 years old when Octavian was thrust into power as Julius Caesar's heir, and the only reason these two teenagers weren't immediately eaten alive by the sharks in the ancient Roman shark tank was because, despite their youth, they had extremely complementary talents. Octavian had the diamond-hard political mind. Agrippa was the most talented teenage general since Pompey, the teenage butcher. Agrippa was the reason Octavian kept winning battles. It was Agrippa who won the Battle of Perugia against Fulvia. In the Battle of Philippi against Brutus and Cassius in 42 BC, Octavian was out sick. Oh, Captain Bonespurs over here. And Agrippa helped Antony drive the assassins to suicide. Oh, and you know how it was Octavian's job to fight Sextus, you know, Pompey's pirate son, which of course he would become a pirate after his dad died. Yeah, total rebellion. Total rebellion. I mean, he wasn't quite a teenager, but, you know, let's just chalk it up to some life phase. I think it was the life phase of, like, his father being defeated in battle and having no way to return to society, and this was basically his only option. It was a pirate's life for Sextus Pompey. Arr. Um, it was a pirate's life. I'm imagining, like, pantaloons, although I know they didn't wear pantaloons. You don't have to tell me that. I got it, guys. <laughs> I just wanted to say pantaloons. Just wanted to work in the mention of pantaloons in our podcast. As often as possible. <laughs> as anachronistic as possible. I think I talked about burlap in the last one, and there was definitely not burlap in ancient Rome. But what the fuck do I know? I'm not a burlap scholar. <laughs> Listen, I just defy you to find a word that is just as much fun to say as pantaloons. <laughs> just say it, pantaloons, right? Pantaloons. It is fun. Are you not entertained? I am entertained. Can we move on? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Going back to that time that Octavian was supposed to be defeating Sextus, well, once again, he phoned that in to his bestie, 
Agrippa. And this was all while Antony was supposed to take care of the Parthians, which he phoned into his good pal, Mentidius. So they both were really good at phoning things in. At that point, it was 36 BC, and Octavian and Antony were both phoning things in. They had other things to do. Antony had, like, the city of Athens to get drunk in, and Octavian had the city of Rome to try and rule. And there was Lepidus just going, oh, hamburgers. <laughs> Poor Lepidus. When Julius Caesar died in 44 BC, he left a power vacuum that many different factions tried to fill. The Octavian and Agrippa dream team managed to fight their way to the top, defeating the last of Caesar's assassins and dominating the conservative factions in the Senate. And now they were one of the last standing. It was 31 BC. Octavian and Agrippa were both about 32 years old and the only other last man standing was Mark Antony. It was time to take him out. When Mark Antony heard the news that Octavian had finally stopped talking about declaring war and decided to actually do it, he was in a good position to win. He had over 10,000 cavalry, a land army of more than 100,000 troops, although bear in mind, number one, Antony can't count, and number two, the ancient sources are not that good at it either, so take all the numbers with a grain of salt. The numbers are fuzzy, you guys. The numbers are fuzzy. Anytime you see a number ending in a zero and a five, it means they don't have the exact number. They're just rounding it up or down based on who's telling the story and who they're trying to glorify or downplay. Sounds like a lot. It may not have been that much. Might have been more. Who the fuck knows? It might have been like 12 because, you know. Well, it's always 12 to Mark Antony, right? Really big numbers. <laughs> it's 12. Or a thousand. And approximately 500 chips. <laughs> courtesy of Cleopatra. He's like, thanks, babe. More than 12. All right. He's like, I can't count that high, but I love it. In the winter of 31 BC, Antony put those ships to another use, stringing them all along the western coast of Greece to form a defensive line against Octavian and Agrippa. Antony's priority here seems to have been to protect Alexandria. Some historians say it must have been because Cleopatra insisted, but Octavian had declared war on her, not him. So it was reasonable to assume he might attack there first. Agrippa, meanwhile, set up a blockade with his own ships that prevented Antony from moving into Italy. All that winter, Mark Antony and Octavian glared at each other from two sides of the Ionian Sea. Nobody was reading from the Caesar playbook at the moment. Nobody made the first move. It was a tense winter. Antony's client kings flocked to him from all over Asia, and Antony sent vast sums of gold to Rome in order to bribe senators and weaken Octavian's support. Meanwhile, Octavian expelled all the soothsayers and astrologists from the city of Rome, so he could be the only one in charge of the narrative. He didn't need anyone else casting lots and spreading rumors. And, you know, again, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but the Romans were super superstitious, and bad omens importance could mean that you would lose the favor of people who should be going to war and backing you. And, you know, that is a way that someone who is a bit crafty, like Julius Caesar, don't say his name again, he would be the sort of person who would definitely definitely massage those soothsayers and omen casters to get the right outcome. And by massage, we mean bribe. Yeah, I mean, we do, but I'm trying not to say his name again. I didn't say his name. I just said bribe. I know you did. I'm worried he's just going to hear it. <laughs> he doesn't care who says his name. He's going to show up when he wants to. You know how he rolls. He shows up when people don't expect him. And he's always wearing a moustache. <laughs> right. I mean, half the times you guys have heard him, you ha you haven't seen him, but he always shows up disguised as somebody else. It's like, oh, Julius Caesar, I still know it's you. 
Everyone knows it's you. You're disguised as Jen, but I know it's you. So Antony, in a moment of cleverness, sent a message to the Senate in Rome promising to restore the Republic within two months if he won. Octavian sent a message to Antony asking him for permission to land on the coast a few days' march from his base. He promised they could engage in battle within five days. Antony responded by challenging Octavian to a duel. I mean, that's one way to end this whole fight early. And of course... Octavian, out with the sniffles, refused. (laughs) Dueling? Octavian doesn't duel. Octavian doesn't even really throw spears very well. He might as well have challenged Mark Antony to a fishing tournament. That would have been good. I mean, the thing about Mark Antony is calling upon is like that great classical, you know, like when Hector and Achilles are battling outside the gates of Troy moment. That's what he wants. You know, he wants this great, glorious moment. And he also knows I can totally beat Octavian in front of everyone. Won't it be funny? And Octavian's like, you could totally beat me in front of everyone. And that would not be funny. I don't like being laughed at. So... A stalemate ensued. Yeah, why would Octavian say yes to that? There's absolutely nothing in it for him. That's the one fight with Mark Antony he knows he's going to lose. Like, an actual fight. And also, he knows, like, listen, Agrippa can kick your ass three ways to Sunday because Agrippa is Pompey come back to life. Clearly, that's what that is. And, uh, you know, you're still using Papa J.C.'s rule book and everyone's read it by now. At least Agrippa has. Like, they teach it in class, old man. Meanwhile, in Rome, the people hedged their bets across the Ionian Sea went a steady stream of spies, messages, and defecting senators on both sides. Nobody knew which way the dice would fall. If you were a member of the senatorial class in ancient Rome at the time, choosing the winning side could be a matter of life or death. Nobody wanted to choose wrong. One man was said to have trained two ravens, one to say, Hail Caesar, our victorious commander, and the other to say, Hail Antony, our victorious commander. Caesar is actually Octavian here because he'd been adopted by Julius Caesar and he was going around calling himself Caesar. A few months into the standoff, Agrippa made his move. He made a quick surprise crossing into Greece and captured a southern base. From there, he moved 80,000 troops across from Italy, and suddenly the game was on. Agrippa captured several important towns and supply depots, and Antony was forced north to Actium, a promontory in the Ambracian Gulf in northwestern Greece. Antony's position was too strong to attack outright, and he outnumbered Agrippa on land, but Agrippa dominated at sea, and he managed to cut Antony off from supplies. Agrippa set up a blockade at the mouth of the gulf and bottled Antony in. For months, into spring and summer, the two sides' land forces maneuvered around each other, skirmishing and disrupting each other's supply lines and calling each other nasty names. At one point, Antony was almost captured in an ambush. Nobody could get the upper hand. Cleopatra brought several benefits to Mark Antony. First, he couldn't afford this war without her. And also, without her, he wouldn't have a navy. Second, among diverse armies of Macedonians, Medes, Ethiopians, Thracians, and more, Cleopatra was most likely the only person in Mark Antony's camp who spoke everyone's language. But she had as many enemies as friends in that camp. King Herod was there, for example. King Herod! Oh, we remember him! He's back! A longtime ally of Mark Antony, but one who loathed Cleopatra, hated her. We have a mini-sode. What did we call that one? Cleopatra and King Herod wouldn't touch you with a barge pole. Oh, it sounds like they didn't like each other very much, Jenny. They did not. 
as of this recording, we have recorded both of those episodes, but I'm not sure if we published both of those episodes. I think the second one is going to go up after this one goes up. It depends if our patrons help us reach our next goal, which is $500 a month, then they will both be out. That's right. So it might or might not be out by now. That depends on you. So anyway, these two hated each other for pretty spectacular reasons. He actually went so far as to suggest Antony assassinate Cleopatra and take Egypt for himself. Antony kicked him out of camp for daring to make that suggestion. It's nice to see Mark Antony having some boundaries. I mean, he doesn't have a lot, but when it comes to Cleopatra, talk shit about her and you can get the fuck out of here. Well, I would say that that is not his boundary, but at least like, you know, in this case. Not always, but in this case. There's a lot of wishy-washy shit. Look, Mark Antony is a fucking pancake. You flip him from side to side. (laughs) And if you leave him on one side for too long, he burns. No one wants burnt pancakes. No one wants burnt Mark Antony. It was a long, hot, mosquito-infested, frustrating summer. Everyone was on their last nerve. The troops started running out of food. Everyone was hangry. And as Jenny knows, don't ever get me hangry. And as the summer dragged on, everyone, Medes, Thracians, Greeks, Macedonians, Romans, and more, had had it up to here with Cleopatra. It's weird because Cleopatra's charm was legendary, but somehow, as spring dragged into summer in that miserable bay, she managed to piss off absolutely everyone in Antony's camp, to the point where people were saying you hadn't really experienced the Battle of Actium if you hadn't taken some of the abuse Cleopatra dished out. Well, I have to say here, though, I want to interject. Please do, because my eyes are in the back of my head. Right, me too. And I just feel like, think about if Cleopatra was a dude, right? Cleopatra is an influential client king. She's the one who supplied all the ships. And she has tactical knowledge. Everyone would be listening to her. I think that the reason people are hating on her right now and how, why she's being seen as abusive, I mean, and to be fair, she might she might actually be kind of hard to deal with right now. Like, this situation is hard on everybody. Nobody's listening to her. Everyone wants her to shut up and be pretty and not say anything and not get in the middle of all the generals talking because they're all dudes and nobody's taking her seriously. And I kind of feel like this is just rampant sexism going on right now. I feel like there's that and there's also the fact that Antony is a pancake. But if Cleopatra's there, she's going to make sure you can't flip him. And it would be much easier if Cleopatra went away because they could definitely flip Antony. Everyone else would have a better say in what he did because, you know, he's very malleable. Hey, they might even be able to walk away from this with not a lot of losses. But if Cleopatra's there, there's going to be a fucking battle and Antony's going to stay the course. He's going to stay the course if she's in the same room. If she's gone, you're absolutely right. He's totally going to sway whichever way you tell him to sway. Here's the thing. There was also an optics problem. Cleopatra slept in a lavish tent, even if she was living rough because that was living rough for her. Cleopatra's accommodations were probably luxurious compared with ordinary soldiers. Roman troops loved generals who shared in their hardships, slept in ditches with them and ate the same crappy food. And Cleopatra was not that general. Guys, she is a living goddess, okay? Right. She's not going to sleep in a ditch and she's not going to eat the same food. Forget it. Forget it. She slept in a silken tent on a soft bed surrounded by barrels and barrels of treasure. She was paying for this army after all. She would brought her treasury with her. And I think that is also the other thing to bring up. Antony was definitely, I will sleep in a ditch. I will drink the crappy wine. I will gamble with my soldiers. I will be there for that camaraderie. But with Cleopatra, now Antony's sleeping on a freaking 
silk tent on this beautiful bed. What does he know about what's going on in the camp? He's not walking the camp in a moustache. He is definitely sleeping in Cleopatra's tent with Cleopatra. He's not sleeping in the ditch with the soldiers. He might be eating with the soldiers, but probably not. No, he's not eating with the soldiers. He's eating with Cleopatra. And his generals are probably eating with Cleopatra or at his table. And, you know, that creates a very different dynamic when you're looking at how to build your army together. When your soldiers are suffering, and I don't know how good Julius Caesar was at this. Like, I can't necessarily say that he was the kind of general who ate with the soldiers, but I do know that he was the kind of general who put himself out in front with the soldiers, and that did make a difference with them. It made a total difference, and I suspect that he probably did eat with the soldiers, not every night, but enough so that you saw him. Because when they were all, like, at the Battle of Elysia, you would not have fought for him if you didn't feel like, oh, he's enduring the same hardship we are, you know, we're all in this together. We're not going back to Rome unless we're going back on our shields. I mean, that's a Spartan metaphor, but whatever. Anyway, the months stretched on. Antony's friends, advisors, and clan kings pushed him to ditch Cleopatra, and Cleopatra refused to play nice with these people. Stacey Schiff says, quote, friends of Antony and Roman consuls alike suffered at her hands, universally reported to have been, quote, within the quote, abused by Cleopatra. She was vindictive, peremptory, brittle. Experience had not made her any more tractable than she had been as a teenager with her brother's advisors. She was, after all, accustomed to exercising supreme authority, poor at taking orders. I mean, and Stacey Schiff is such an amazing writer. You know, that's probably true about Cleopatra. Like, when she wasn't getting her way and she wanted her way, I'm sure that she made herself impossible to live with until she got her way. But I also do kind of feel like a dude would not get this criticism from these generals. Well, but also, I think the thing about Cleopatra here is she's not giving even a fucking inch. She's going to sleep in that goddamn tent. She's going to have her luxury. She's got her treasury. She's financing the war. If you've got a problem, take it up with my sack of gold. Most generals wouldn't behave that way. You know, they're very aware of what it means to lead an army. And part of that is actually looking like you're goddamn suffering. Like, we don't see this complaint leveled at Agrippina the Elder. Because Agrippina the Elder, when she was on campaign with Germanicus, he was not living separate. They were living, you know, in a way that the soldiers felt like they were all together. Obviously, the ancient writers have such a slant, but there must have been more extravagance than they would deem necessary for her. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's likely given what we know about Cleopatra. So an army camp might not have been the most comfortable place for Cleopatra, but she had good reason not to leave. Stacey Schiff points out that she'd been, quote, ill-served by intermediaries. Cleopatra had had the experience of being thrown out of her palace by her own courtiers. Her general in Cyprus had disobeyed her and sent her armies and supplies to the wrong side. She knew that if she wanted things done right, she had to do them herself. Oh God, I feel this so hard. I gotta say, as the person who was like always the kid in group projects at school who had to do all the work while everybody else fucked off, I feel this so fucking hard. Besides, Antony was a people pleaser. She can't leave the room. She can't leave him alone with these guys. None of these dudes surrounding him would hesitate for a single moment before tossing her right under the bus if buses existed. We're aware that they didn't, but maybe under something else like a trireme. I feel like we have to call it an omnibus, <laughs> which is where a bus comes from, actually. Under the omnibus. Anyway, like, just, you know, totally sacrifice her on the altar of optics or whatever, even though she's funding the whole war. And she could not necessarily trust Antony not to go along to please them if she wasn't actually right there next to him. As Jen so eloquently described, he was a pancake. Someone else is going to try and flip him. She needed to make sure that didn't happen. Several times in the recent past, he'd wound up agreeing with his friends when they suggested he send her away and she had to do damage control. I mean, there was somebody in the camp suggesting he assassinate her. Like, yeah, it was Herod 
and Antony threw that guy out, but who's to say that everyone wouldn't suggest that later? True. I mean, I don't I don't blame Cleopatra for being worried, but I also do think that Antony had major Cleopatra blinders, and I don't think he necessarily took the advice perhaps he should have as a result. That's probably true. Like, I'm not really seeing what the actual military situation was in terms of, like, how smart these generals were about things versus how smart Cleopatra was about things and, like, who was suggesting what. However, I feel for Cleopatra in these situations. I do too. But I do, like I said, we've seen Agrippina the Elder, we've seen Fulvia, we've seen women who have some kind of military mind. And I'm not sure that's where Cleopatra's strength was. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think she was a warrior. No, and I think the generals are pointing out this is not her skill set. She's disruptive to the men. This freaking silk tent and everything else is making them wonder if you really understand what you're fighting for. And what you're asking them to do. And also your intense loyalty to her is causing a major optic problem with people in Rome. So you have to distance yourself from her. That summer, Cleopatra fought with Antony and his generals constantly. She refused to be deferential to the men. She had strong opinions about how Antony should conduct the battle. Not to mention, she was the reason for this war. A wholly unnecessary person, according to Antony's generals, that Antony was better off without. Everyone kept forgetting that it was Cleopatra who wrote the checks. Even Canidius, the general Cleopatra had bribed to speak to Antony in her favor, urged Antony to ditch Cleopatra and march into Thrace or Macedonia. And when Antony steadfastly refused to get rid of Cleopatra, people who'd been with him since the beginning started defecting to Octavian. Amidst a steady stream of betrayals, Antony started getting paranoid. At one point, he tortured and killed a client king and a senator he suspected of wanting to desert. He even started distrusting Cleopatra, even going so far as to accuse her of trying to to poison him. There's a story, probably embellished, of how when Antony accused her of trying to poison him, Cleopatra prepared a poison drink for Antony, then stopped him at the last minute from drinking it. Cleopatra even made a slave down the concoction instead, after which he immediately died. See, she said to Antony, as his poor slave lay dead on the floor, I could have poisoned you any time I wanted to. Clearly, I haven't been trying to poison you, or you'd already be dead. Well, that's so reassuring, Cleo. Thanks. Oh, Cleopatra, come on. Uh, Jesus fucking Christ. I feel like sometimes I just, I'm laughing because I'm horrified, okay? (laughs) Every time you kind of want to feel for her, she does something awful like this and you're like, seriously? What the fuck is this? Why? Listen, Cleopatra was a living goddess on Earth, and it's fun to be like, yay, women's empowerment. She was a goddess. But one of the downsides of thinking you're a goddess is that you believe you can do anything to anybody. Yeah, where have we seen that before? Someone later on who also believes he's a god. So many people that we run into in these stories have this complex. Sickness spread along with the heat and the mosquitoes. By August, the camp had run so low on food that Antony had his soldiers requisition grain from neighboring villages, and, since their beasts of burden were all dying, people to transport them. Plutarch's great-grandfather was from this area, and he used to regale his family with tales of the time he and his friends and neighbors were forced to march over a mountain range with sacks of grain on their backs, driven on by Antony's soldiers and their whips. I kind of love how Plutarch has family members who were kind of in Mark Antony's orbit, although at a very different level of society. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. Finally, Antony called a war council. They'd been under blockade for four brutal months. This could not continue. They had to make a decision. Was it to be war by land or war by sea? Antony was indecisive about this. His waffling was part of the reason the blockade had lasted so long. The Roman generals argued for a land battle. They were far more comfortable on land. Cleopatra argued just as strongly for a sea battle. She was the one who'd supplied the ships. She knew that if Antony chose land, he'd have to abandon her ships and quite possibly her entire treasury to Octavian. It would be next to impossible to transport all her riches by land. There were a lot of riches. If Antony lost to Agrippa and Octavian, they'd turn on Egypt next, and her country would need those ships and that money. She couldn't afford to have Antony sacrifice it all to the enemy outright. Against the advice of his generals, Antony chose to listen to Cleopatra and have the battle at sea. Plutarch chalks it up to his infatuation. He literally was not capable of saying no to her, but he had sound tactical reasons for wanting a fight at sea. Antony led an army of diverse people who fought in different ways, spoke different languages, and followed different kings. Octavian led a force of Roman troops who all spoke the same language and were drilled in the same system. Antony had seen how this had played out before, twice, at Pharsalus and Alesia. Pompey had an army like Antony's, and he'd lost to Caesar. So had Vercingetorix. So Julius Caesar, what choice would you have made here, land or sea? Julius Caesar reluctantly agrees with that scurrilous Mark Antony. I'm glad to see that he learned at least two things from me. When you're facing the might of the Roman military and your army is disparate peoples who may or may not be able to follow you, and they have many alliances which may or may not hold true, you should not engage in outright war on land against highly trained legions led by that fabulous up-and-comer Agrippa. There's something to be said for having a really cohesive force. Absolutely. Julius Caesar would prefer that nine times out of ten. Yeah, but sometimes you just don't have the choice now, do you? What has Antony been doing all these long months to indoctrinate these people into the Roman way of fighting? How has he been drilling them? How has he been keeping up the morale against the Romans who are there? What has he been doing to get intelligence? We know what happens with Antony when he has time on his own and no one to direct him to do things. Oh, that's a super good point. I mean, if you look at Vercingetorix, he was he was drilling his people. He was trying to build a cohesive force. I seriously doubt Antony was doing that. Absolutely. When you look at the rebel Spartacus, he knew how the Romans fought and he looked for the weaknesses and how they could exploit that. Was Antony doing the same? I mean, Antony knew the Roman strengths and weaknesses like the back of his hand. Antony was a Roman. He came up in, in the Roman system. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know that that was even it. Sea battles were not our strengths, were they? So what would you have done? There are too many variables fighting at sea. Reluctantly, one does agree that it is better for the type of army Antony has to fight at sea. Would you not have just packed up your army and went to find favorable ground? I feel like that's what you would have done. Well, of course. There's no point staying in a bay where you can easily be surrounded by Agrippa's navy. I would have gone back to somewhere where I could control the odds. I would go somewhere where I could continue to drill my army and ensure that we were able to exploit the Romans in ways that they had not yet seen. I knew that. I'm in your brain, Julius Caesar. Oh, I mean, it's a very comfortable place sometimes. This is disturbing. I'm disturbed. <laughs> the things I learn about myself in the course of this podcast. I suspect Julius Caesar would have gone back somewhere like Athens or Alexandria. Well, maybe Macedonia or Thrace. I'd have to look at a map and see what was like the most convenient. Julius Caesar would have gone somewhere where his stronghold was secure, where his people were secure. And he would have engaged in a war where he had a much more favorable outcome. I would have made them come to me and I would have decimated them along the way. That is not 
with the scoundrel Antony did. It is very difficult to watch someone who you had so much hope for fall quite so quickly. Well, let's get to that part. We haven't gotten to that part yet. Miss Williamson, this battle has been long fought and lost many, many years ago. Storytelling 101, Caesar. We don't want to give anyone spoilers. <sighs> yes, Miss Williamson, I'll go back to watching Nailed It on Netflix. <laughs> you and your weird Netflix shows. Anyway, I'm going to get us back to the story. Julius Caesar, go watch Nailed It. It's good fun. Don't try and bake. We know that's not your forte. Maybe he's really good at baking now. Julius Caesar, how are your muffins coming? You can't handle my muffins. I'm pretty sure I can totally handle your muffins. No one makes muffins like Julius Caesar. I would like to verify this myself at some point. Currently, I'm perfecting a recipe for pumpkin chocolate chip muffins. I'm coming over. You're making me muffins. <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to step in once again and remind you we're recording a podcast. Jen, I'm trying to have a conversation with Julius Caesar right now. Okay. Oh, everyone wants to talk to Caesar. Jen gets really uncomfortable when Julius Caesar and I flirt. I really do. I've deleted a lot of the more X-rated flirting that Julius Caesar and I have done. Just want to keep it to PG. Except when the horse phallus pops up. I mean, sometimes... <laughs> That was not about Julius Caesar. That was Brutus and his wife, Portia. I have no control over what they do. We were spying on them like Mark Antony spying on a common Alexandrian person on the street. We were. And we saw horse pals and we were like, wow. We were like, oh, well, this is clearly, clearly the right household to spy on. <laughs> moving on. We're moving on. <laughs> For four days, fierce gale-force winds and rain lashed the coast of Greece. But the day of September 2nd, 31 BC, dawned clear and warm, the sea flat as glass. Mark Antony and his fleet arranged themselves at the mouth of the Ambracian Gulf, facing down Agrippa's blockade. Octavian was mostly sitting this one out. He had a blister on his right pinky toe. He had a blister, Jenny. Totally threw off his balance. He was watching from a safe location on the shore. Agrippa's goal was to lure Antony's ships out of the mouth of the gulf so his own ships could wrap around and flank them, going round the back, which is military history 101 in the ancient world. It's a vast oversimplification, but basically everyone was trying to go round the back. Ask Mary Beard, she's the one who breaks it down. Antony's aim was to batter down Agrippa's blockade. He put Cleopatra and her enormous treasury in her massive ten-decker flagship, the Antonia, and set the whole thing behind him in the mouth of the gulf, with 60 ships to guard her. So he named his ship the Antonia. I know, you think he could have named one the Cleopatra, but no. Everything Mark Antony owns either needs to be Antony or Antonius or Antonia or Antoniella. I mean, how much do you want to bet all the ships in Mark Antony's fleet were named the Antonia? I'm pretty sure my mother's full Italian name is Antonietta. Oh man, Mark Antony got to her. He got to my family, guys. He's in your family <laughs> line. <laughs> Down through the ages. <laughs> and you, and you, and you, you will all be named after me. <laughs> slowly, Agrippa backed his ships off, trying to lure Antony out to him. And slowly, Antony's ship sailed forward to meet him. So pause for a second to give you a clearer picture of what this naval battle would be like. The warships on both sides of this battle were mighty triremes and variations on that design. Quintremes, quadrireems, tetremes, all the remes. They were massive, deadly, streamlined robot rowboats built to kill. But they weren't robot rowboats. We're just calling them that. 
We're calling them that because Jen can't say rowboats. Because we had this one episode where Jen had to repeat this one sentence with the word rowboat in it because she kept saying robot. <laughs> now it's robot rowboats into eternity. Anyway, the triremes had three banks of rowers and oars, but that wasn't the only size. A quintreme had five banks of rowers. Many of Antony's ships, including Cleopatra's massive flagship, appropriately named the Antonia, had ten banks of rowers. While these ships did have sails and masts and could be used as sailing ships, in a war situation, they usually took the sails and even the masts and rigging off the ships to allow more room for rowers and soldiers. The rowers gave the vessels speed and maneuverability and ensured that in a war situation, they were not at the mercy of the winds. In a naval battle, which side won often depended on who was faster and more maneuverable. And to get the advantage, every spare scrap of space on the boats had to be given to rowers. There was no room for supplies, and these were not transport ships. Triremes and their larger cousins often sailed very close to shore and were supported by land armies that carried their supplies. There were two ways to fight a naval battle in this time period. First, you could build up speed and ram your enemy. Ancient warships were built for this. There was a large, bronze-plated battering ram fixed to the front of each ship below the waterline specifically for ramming. These were called the beaks, and victorious navies would often take the battering rams from the ships of defeated navies and display them in public places. In Rome, bronze beaks from defeated warships decorated the rostra, or speaker's platform. The name rostra meant the beaks. The second method of winning a naval battle was by boarding. These warships had scant room to carry anyone not engaged in rowing, but the Romans were far more comfortable fighting battles on land than sea, no matter how strong their navies got. Carrying soldiers on board your trireme, squeezing them into every spare inch of space you could find, and getting them onto the enemy ships effectively transformed sea battles into something analogous to land battles, where men could win by fighting hand to hand. Many Roman admirals used this tactic. To board an enemy's trireme, you sail yours close along alongside with your oars drawn in, ideally close enough to snap your enemy's oars. This renders them dead in the water and helpless to resist your invasion. Then you toss over grappling hooks, ladders, and ramps to help you get across. From there, your crew fights the enemy's crew hand to hand, and hopefully your side wins. I mean, this feels like Pirates of the Caribbean to me. There were other things you could do to sink enemy ships or if you were about to be boarded to prevent that from happening. Stuff like shooting flaming missiles on board to set the enemy ship on fire. Things got nasty quickly in these ancient naval battles, which often involved hundreds of ships ramming each other, boarding each other's decks, and slaughtering each other, and setting each other on fire. The sea would have been thick with pieces of ruined boats and corpses of drowned men for weeks after one of these battles, which frequently involved hundreds of ships and thousands of men. So let's take a look at Antony's fleet and Agrippa's specifically. There were some significant differences between these two fleets. First, Agrippa's fleet was manned by experienced crews. Most of Antony's was comprised of newbies, and some had been press-ganged on, meaning basically kidnapped and forced to row. Antony's sailors were outclassed by Agrippa's. Point to Agrippa. Second, Antony had bigger ships than Agrippa did. He had a lot more of the ten-decker variety, and while powerful and basically impossible to ram, they were also less maneuverable. As the two navies engaged, Mark Antony's ships attempted to build up ramming speed, but Agrippa's ships refused to stay in one place and let themselves be rammed. I mean, this is kind of 50-50 at this point, right? Agrippa saw that it was useless to try ramming Antony's ships with his smaller ships, but he had more ships than Antony did overall, and they were more maneuverable. Antony's ships were basically sitting ducks for boarding. So, point to Agrippa, I guess? But 
it's not as weighted. You know, this is like a... It's like 0.5 to Antony, 0.5 to Agrippa. Right. This is a pretty close, close 50-50 thing. And you know, when it's close 50-50 like that, what's really gonna make the difference is how knowledgeable your crews are. So point, point to Agrippa. So Agrippa ordered his navy to swarm Antony's ships, three or four to a ten-decker, throwing ropes and torches and grappling hooks to pin them down and board them. But Antony's ships weren't exactly helpless. They were floating fortresses outfitted with catapults set on wooden towers built on the decks. They fought back. As the two sides made contact, the immense crack of catapults crashing into the hulls of triremes sounded out over the bay. Swords crashed and sails went up in flames with a whoosh as flaming missiles caught in the rigging. Mighty quintremes and quadremes listed to the side and sank with all on board. Just as things were getting really nasty, a shadow crossed in front of the sun. As everyone on both sides stopped and stared, Cleopatra's great ten-decker warship, the Antonia, glided through the smoke and sparks of battle, through a sea thick with flotsam and the bodies of drowned men, with its purple sails unfurled at the head of a favorable wind, leading her guard of sixty warships. As Mark Antony watched, astonished, she sailed effortlessly through the blockade and away in the direction of Alexandria. Antony immediately jumped in a small, fast ship and chased after her, leaving his navy and land army to their fate. So what the fuck was this, Jen? <laughs> oh my god, Antony just lost everything. He just bailed. He bailed on everyone. He fucking bailed on Rome. He bailed on his soldiers. Like, there is no coming back from this. One of the most important things about being a Roman general, like the one of the, the ethos you're supposed to cleave to, right, is that you never abandon your men. If it looks hopeless, you do what Julius Caesar always did, and you take your ball and you go somewhere else. You take your whole army, you decamp, and you find more favorable ground, and you try to get the end enemy to fight you on your terms. You never abandon your men. The point is you live, you die, you're all in this together. What he's done is just said, we are not in this together. I'm going with Cleopatra. So what the hell just happened here? I've seen different writers, like ancient writers and modern writers, try to explain this in different ways. Cassius Dio claims that Cleopatra lost her nerve. He says, quote, Cleopatra, riding at anchor behind the combatants, could not endure the long and anxious waiting until a decision could be reached. But true to her nature as a woman and an Egyptian... Uh, sorry. Way to fit in racism and sexism in one short sentence. Two for one. <laughs> Thanks, Dio. Thanks for that. She was tortured by the agony of the long suspense and by the constant and fearful expectation of either possible outcome. And so she suddenly turned to flight. Other writers say that this was part of the plan all along, that Antony knew he was beaten and never intended to fight, but only to distract Agrippa long enough to break through the blockade with Cleopatra and Cleopatra's money. Maybe. I mean, what do you think, Jen? I don't know. I really don't know. I think that was Cleopatra's plan. Whether or not it was Antony's plan, I don't know, because doing this, what Antony's done, there's no one who's going to follow him. The fact that she had sails on her ships tells me that maybe this was planned because usually they didn't have sails on the ships. So if they had sails on their ships, maybe they intended to just wait for the right wind as the battle was going on and they intended to run the blockade while the battle was happening and Agrippa couldn't stop them. Maybe, but... That's one theory that I've seen posited by more modern historians, that this was all part of the grand plan. But then how can you explain how why Antony ran after her? Because Antony running after her is basically throwing in the towel early. It's career suicide, isn't it? You're not going to be able to general again. Who's going to follow you if you would just abandon your men and run after Cleopatra? Like, 
from a swoon-worthy romantic, it's like, oh, yes, all that for her. But from a pragmatist, I'm like, how are people going to follow you if they don't feel like you're going to fight until you can't fight no more and then you give the signal and you run back to Alexandria? Like, I don't know. The other problem that we have here is that everything was at stake for Cleopatra. If they lost this battle, next would be Alexandria. And if they don't get back there and fortify Alexandria to their liking or whatever they need to do, that's it. It's over. It's easy to look at this and be like, wow, swoon. He couldn't stand to lose her. I mean, I I feel that, you know, I feel that when I read this story. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, but what's the end game? I don't know, because, you know, what's coming down to us is not that everyone loved Cleopatra and everyone felt like, okay, this is our stand against Rome and Antony is with us. And if we do this, then, you know, we'll all be together and we'll have a new order. Like, that's not what we're getting from the ancient sources. So I don't know. And bear in mind that the ancient sources are all extremely biased. They're all pro-Roman agenda. So we don't know. Maybe Antony and Cleopatra are like, hey, why don't we just take over Rome? It's chaos there anyway. Like maybe this was part of a grander plan that we just don't know about because it hasn't come down to us. But it's baffling. My suspicion, and this is a flawed theory, is that the mistake came down to timing. Cleopatra was supposed to run the blockade. That's why all the sails were on all of her ships, not just her ships, but the 60 warships behind her. That tells me that this was an organizational decision on the top somewhere. I agree that at some point she was supposed to run that blockade. The most important thing at this point in time for Antony and for the generals and for the ability to carry on war would be to get her and that treasury out of here. Maybe it wasn't supposed to happen now. Maybe it wasn't supposed to happen for a while. Or maybe Mark Antony was the one who choked when he saw Cleopatra go, and he chased after Cleopatra, fearing more for her safety than that of his men. Or perhaps he saw the naval battle was lost and made a split-second, inadvisable decision. Maybe? Maybe he thought, this is my only chance to escape. If I stay with this navy now, I'll go down with these ships. Here's the thing, though. Whatever the reason things went down like they did at the Battle of Actium, it seems really clear that it was not according to plan, and it was not according to Antony's plan, based on his behavior later, which we're about to tell you about. <laughs> Julius Caesar has something to say, I'm sure. Oh, Miss Williamson. <laughs> Miss Williamson. <laughs> Julius Caesar would like to remind you, Antony never has a plan. <laughs> He just sort of shows up and shit goes down. He's just improvising at all times, is what you're saying. Well, either that or he's following the plans of others. He's very good at that. I have no complaints about when he followed direct orders. I mean, he's capable of great things. It's just his lane has to be very clear. His lane has to be incredibly clear, Miss Williams. And otherwise, there is so much room for error. It baffles the great Julius Caesar that Antony would abandon his men. There is so much drilled into him. He was such a great soldier to break with his men and to go in such a strange manner. I don't know. Right. You're not supposed to abandon your men. One can only imagine that he had spent so much time with the glorious Lady Cleopatra that he began to actually think he was a god. Oh, do you think that was it? Perhaps he thought the rules didn't apply to him any longer. Julius Caesar would not like to speculate about the mindset of Mark Antony, but it is heartbreaking to see such a tragic and obvious mistake by one who should have been so skilled at war. Right. I agree. Fucking A. Every time. <laughs> Every time. Every time. It's embarrassing. I agree with you, Julius Caesar. It's baffling to me, too. So moving on. Antony caught up with Cleopatra's ship and boarded it and then refused to speak to her out of anger, shame, or both. 
I think if this was their plan all along, which evidence suggests it could have been. I don't know that this was their plan all along. Something was a fuck up here. Something was a fuck up here. But if this was part of their plan, it might have been that Antony was never as comfortable with it as he as he said, because what I can see here from a tendency to people, please, is this is not the outcome he wanted. But also, like, I think what made Antony such a great number two was if he had an order, he would just do that order. And then he didn't have to think about the consequences because that was the order. Here he has to make a very difficult decision, which is potentially, yeah, they've only been fighting for an hour, but the battle is lost. So now we have to regroup. And part of regrouping means I have to live. And for me, to live, all of these people have to die. And I don't think he was comfortable with that in any way, shape, or form. And I think he also knew that it would be incredibly difficult to have an army follow him after making that dramatic and destructive move. Whoever took the blame for the Battle of Actium, like, whoever fucked up here? I don't know. I don't know if it was Cleopatra running the blockade too soon, or maybe she wasn't supposed to run it at all, or maybe Mark Antony choked, and maybe this was his way of regrouping, or maybe he was just going after Cleopatra because he was afraid for her safety. There's so much we don't know here that relies on both of these people's psyche and we're not in their brains. And we're getting it from mostly hostile sources. Yeah, and we're getting this story from the victor. You know, as far as the victor is concerned, like, of course they made this obvious mistake. No one would make this mistake in their right mind. Anyway, Antony caught up with Cleopatra's ship and boarded it and then refused to speak to her out of anger, shame, or both. For three days, Mark Antony sat in the prow of Cleopatra's ship. His head in his hands, staring out to sea, brooding in silence. Because right now, something has gone wrong. We don't know whose fault it was or how exactly it worked. We don't know why everyone did what they did in the Battle of Actium. But we know that at this point, Mark Antony is freaking out. This was not according to plan. And I suspect he blames Cleopatra to a certain extent because of the way he's treating her. I totally think he does. Yeah. So finally, Cleopatra's ladies-in-waiting coaxed him to talk to her again and persuaded them to eat and sleep together. It was a miserable voyage. News came in that the battle had proceeded without its commander. Antony's captains had managed to hold out heroically until nightfall before being defeated by Agrippa. When Antony and Cleopatra put to shore for supplies, they saw bodies and fragments of ships washing up on shore. Antony had also abandoned a massive land army, and it took a few days for his troops to realize he was gone. When they found out, at first, the troops were incredulous. Hadn't Antony faced many other situations far worse than this without flinching? Rumors swept the camps that Antony would return any moment with some new plan in his back pocket. But finally, after about a week, it became clear Antony was not coming back. So Mark Antony's entire land army, over 100,000 strong, defected to Octavian. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with the final installment of Cleopatra and Mark Antony, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. You can catch up with us in the meantime at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram or Facebook. And you can get more episodes from us in the meantime if you sign up for our Patreon. We've currently got about five or six episodes for Patreon subscribers, which you can access for $2 a month. And we put up a new one every month. And as soon as you sign up, you get instant access. Such a win. And it's so great because it means that you get us three times a month. So once a week, except one week off. We're at just about 200 a month on the Patreon right now as of this recording, which doesn't cover all the expenses for the podcast between the two of us. It definitely doesn't cover a third of the expenses. <laughs> yeah, we're not making any money off this outfit. Let me tell you what. And once we get to $500 a month, we're committed to producing two minisodes a month. We might have reached that goal by the time this goes out, but I kind of 
doubt it. But you know what? I'm going to stay positive. Stay positive. What would Cleopatra do? She'd be planning to drag her ships out into the desert and portage them 40 miles and put them in a whole other ocean. That's what she'd be planning to do. She'd also be a Ptolemaic patron of our art. Oh, yeah, that's right. She'd be donating a lot of money to the Patreon. Mm-hmm. So you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, check our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can find links to our Ko-Fi account where you can buy us a coffee. It's a one-time thing. Or you can check out our merch. Or if you want to support us in a way that doesn't involve money, leave us a nice review. We love and appreciate every one of those. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two weeks. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.